0: everyone, and welcome to JCM, Prepare the Way. My name is Carol, and I am so grateful that you are joining us on our series on Revelation. And if you are new to this podcast, we just want to welcome you and thank you for listening wherever you are in the world. Now, today we're on episode four, and we are continuing our journey into the seven letters of the seven churches. We've already talked about Ephesus, but today we are talking about the church in Smyrna, And this is a very important church for us to address, because this was a persecuted church, and we have a lot that we can learn from them. So let me begin by reading this letter to this church, and it's found in Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life, I know your works He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, and he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Smyrna was a church that suffered from beginning to end. In fact, there are only two churches of the seven letters that were not criticized for their faith, and Smyrna is one of them. It was a church that was established about 40 years before this letter was written, So if John was exiled around 95 AD, then that means this church was most likely established around 55 AD. Paul would have been in Ephesus at the time. So more than likely, this was a church of converts that came from Ephesus establishing the church of Smyrna, which was the case for a lot of the churches in this region. Now we don't have a lot of writings on Smyrna. But what we do have are writings from bishops and other church leaders at the time. And so we can gather some of that information together as it pertains to this church. But we're going to talk about this city itself and the culture in order to understand how Jesus pulls in those elements to make his points in this letter. I want to start with how Jesus identifies himself. Again, he rarely identifies himself as Jesus but rather he pulls in an attribute of who he is and he did it again in this letter when he calls himself the first and the last he who was dead and came to life. I love how he did that right there in this letter to Smyrna because he immediately is letting in on the fact that he knows the history of Smyrna because Smyrna was also a city That was dead and came back to life. It was built around 1,000 years BC. And 500 years after it was built, it was destroyed. And then 300 years later, it was rebuilt and restored. I love that Jesus is letting in on the fact that he is the God who sees, he knows the history of every place. So I just think that initial opening is quite powerful. Now, as far as the city itself, similar to Ephesus, which was only about 40 miles to the south of Smyrna, it too was a port city. That means it had travelers that regularly passed through it on well-traveled trade routes, right, that took them either to the interior of the country or beyond, eastward, into places like India or China. And so Smyrna was a well-known city. But it was also a city that was known for its great beauty. It was one of the most beautiful cities in that region at the time. And it was specifically known for its impressive architecture, which encircled this mountain right there in the city called Mount Pegasus or Pagos. People pronounce it different ways. Which was a large mount or a large hill. And it was called the Crown of Smyrna. Because at the very top of it was a fortress and the fortress gave the appearance of a crown. So you can see how even Jesus is pulling in a bit of a reference in his letter when he talks about the crown of life, when every day these people would step out of their door and gaze upon the crown of Smyrna. We'll go into that later. So Smyrna was special. In fact, it had the nickname of the pride of Asia or the glory of Asia. And it was a city that had great wealth, great prosperity, and was very luxurious. In fact, its streets were wide and paved, which was another sign of wealth to have paved roads. It was known for its schools of science, its schools of medicine, but mainly for its beautiful buildings, among which was one called the Homerium, because Smyrna is believed to be the birthplace of the poet Homer. So I just found that to be interesting. And walking through the city, it's exactly as we talked about in our last episode on Ephesus. It's a mini replica of Rome. You have the gymnasium. You had a stadium. You had a theater which held 20,000 people, which was on the Northwest mountain slope. There was a library. There was a massive agora, which is a market. And so it was another mini replica of Rome. But something different that Smyrna had was a street that went right down the middle of the city named the Golden Street. And the Golden Street actually displayed many temples to idols such as Aphrodite, Dionysus, and the emperors. But it also included a temple to Zeus and of a female goddess that was the, um, of the cult of the Magna Mater, the great mother goddess. And you spell her name C-Y-B-E-L-E. Some people pronounce it Sybil, some pronounce it Cibeli, some pronounce her Cybele, but either way, you see this mother worship come back in. Mother worship was huge in the Roman Empire. That's where we get, quote, Mother Earth from. And again, if I can just encourage anyone out there, if you make references to Mother Earth in regards to environmental causes or weather patterns or whatever, even in jest, Be very careful, because this was a common terminology for pagan religions. And so Smyrna prided itself on its idols. And because it was such an idolatrous city and such a luxurious, wealthy city, it was also, therefore, a very patriotic patriotic city. It was filled with the civic pride that it had in these idols, but it also had imperial loyalty. And so it was very loyal to its emperors. And you know, with this loyalty to the emperors, they expected the citizens of this place to worship these idols and to worship the emperors. And to not participate in this type of worship was considered treason. And so now consider this letter to these Christians in Smyrna. It was written during that time of that evil emperor Domitian, right? They faced probably even more opposition than most due to the strong influence of the emperor worship they had in the city and how patriotic this city was. It was required by law to worship the emperor. And if you didn't, it was punishable by imprisonment or death. So they faced that. But then Revelation 2.9 says something very important for us to note. It says, I know your works, tribulation, and poverty but you are rich this church was the poorest of the poor that's why jesus says i know your poverty he knew how poor they were and that word poverty in this verse actually means beggarly it means destitute this church of smyrna had nothing in one of the most wealthy cities of the region They were the poorest of society. They were literal beggars on the street. And why is that? Well, consider that this was another popular trade route in a trade port. And when you had that combination, you had what's called trade guilds. Now, a trade guild is what people established to trade, to be able to do business together. You could buy from me, I could buy from you, so on and so forth. We could have this mutually exclusive thing And we could make money and have a livelihood. The trick is, in order to be part of the trade guild, you had to partake in their religious ceremonies, which were pagan religious ceremonies. Well, the early church wasn't going to do that. And it wasn't just about the ceremonies. They had these things called trade guild dinners. And they were common in Thyatira. They're common in Pergamon. Well, they also had them in Smyrna. And why wouldn't they want to a tra- attend a trade guild dinner? Because prior to dinner, a ceremony would take place that involved a sacrifice. And then after dinner, there were immoral rituals. So trade guilds had idolatry on the front end and then immorality on the back end. And the Christians in Smyrna wouldn't be part of it. They were not going to mix with society. Keep in mind, these people, this early church, is most likely. Uh, compiled of converts that have come from Ephesus, trained up under Paul, right? Be holy for I am holy. Come out from among them to be separate. I'm sure Paul's words rang in their minds and in their ears this whole time. They were choosing not, they were going to choose their own livelihoods not to mix with society. That is quite a lesson for us today. This meant that nobody would buy goods from them and they were not permitted to buy goods from anybody else. And it made them poor. Is this something as Christians that we're willing to do today? Because it made them destitute in their own city, this very wealthy affluent city, and they could do nothing to make any kind of money and they truly had to live by faith. We got a taste of this not long ago, didn't we? Remember? I hope it's not that far from our memory so soon when all over the world, people couldn't go into this establishment or that establishment if they weren't this way or that way, right? We just went through this separation, kind of like what they were going through. It looked a little different. It was on a health mandate. But either way, it's a precursor, a prequel of things that are going to come at the end of the age. This church, the condition of it, my friends, it's a prophetic picture of what may happen again one day when the Antichrist system truly takes over in its fullness. Those who go along with it, what does it say? You know, those who don't go along with it, I should say, won't be able to buy or sell. Doesn't that sound eerily familiar to what this church was going through with trade guilds? Those who do go along with it will be like those who partake of the trade guilds. But those who refuse, who take a stand for righteousness, it's going to cost us. We're not going to be able to buy or sell. And so just it's going to be just like the early Christians here. They were beggarly. And I guess my question, is your faith strong enough? that you, Are you prepared for that? Is, it's just something to think about. So this Christian community in Smyrna, it was considered as poor of a community. No prestige, no political influence or power. While in contrast, the rich would adorn their temples and pay homage to these pagan deities. It's quite remarkable. There was no Christian commonwealth. It's a tiny minority in a community devoted to a multitude of gods. The contrast, my friends, between the city and the church is truly marked. And Jesus saw it all. Their works, their tribulation, their poverty. But in his mind, They were the rich ones, and that is still how it is today. This church made many rich spiritually by passing on the gospel despite everything coming against them. They possessed all things, and he commended them for it, which I imagine was a great comfort to them when they read this letter. And then he says something kind of strange and odd that a lot of people still try to figure out today. He says, I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. What is he referring to? Well, the only thing that we can truly pull from is history. So that's what we're going to present. And then you can make your own conclusion on that. The strong allegiance to Rome, plus a large Jewish population, which was actively hostile to the Christians, made it exceptionally difficult to live as a Christian in Smyrna. The Jewish community outside the church spoke evil of the Christian community. Why? You see, every religion had to be registered with the Roman authorities. And if you didn't register or you couldn't register for some reason, you were called an illegal sect. And when you were an illegal sect, then you are not protected by law. So someone could persecute you or do anything they want to you, and you are not protected by anything. Well, somehow, the Jews managed to get their registration in spite of all this. And therefore, they didn't have to worship Caesar. How did they do that? It's suggested by some that they struck some kind of a deal with the Roman Empire. And then, rather than protect their brothers, even if they were Jewish believers, they went against them and started to turn them into the authorities. Is this the reason why Jesus accuses them of lying? They say they are of Jews, but they're not. They're of the synagogue of Satan. They sold out their brothers. They were looking out for their own interest and they became part of the synagogue of Satan, the father of lies and lying. They sold out to the Roman Empire. This is confirmed by history. So this church is afflicted in two ways financial through the trade guilds, and now through slander from their own brothers. So Jesus in this letter clearly shows that he is siding with his church in Smyrna. Jesus always relates to the suffering church. I think of this for, for our brothers and sisters in faith who are in Asia, who are in China, who are in Iran and Iraq and Rangoon and so many other places, who have stood in the midst of great opposition And I love that he promises them that as a result of their faithfulness, even unto death, that they would receive the crown of life. Unlike that crown of Smyrna that they gazed upon every day when they stepped out of their door. He's saying, I've got a better crown than that. I've got the crown of life to give you. I mean, what better commendation is that? And what an encouragement to our brothers and sisters in the faith right now who are suffering for Christ. God bless you all out there. Now, what's interesting in this is that Jesus doesn't give them any hope or encouragement that he's going to come rescue them from their present situation. And that's what I think a lot of us are hoping for today, aren't we? We want to be rescued from oppressive governments. We want to be rescued from the corruption. We want to be rescued from our present situation wherever we live. But in fact, the rest of his letter, he tells them three more things that are to come. So there's an expectation from Jesus that he's expecting them to bear up and endure under these things. And that's a message for us, I think, even today. So number one, some of them are going to go to prison. Have you ever studied the Turkish prisons? I encourage you to do that. Number two, they would have 10 days in prison. Now, many people have speculated about what this 10 days mean. And there's still no concrete answer. But bottom line is this. We at least know this, that it describes a time that they would be imprisoned. But it would be brief. So it's a measure of time. Don't overthink it for now. Don't over spiritualize it for now because we really do not have the answer to that yet. It's still a mystery. But just know that it's a measure of time. It can either be literal or not. And then, lastly, there would be loss of life. Some of these people will die. Imagine looking around the room at each other as this letter is being read and thinking, we're going to die. But then he says, do not fear. Because just as he was dead and now he is alive, if they died, they too would be alive. They would have that crown of life. Life. Do you know in your Bible, there are 366 times where it says, don't be afraid. Jesus was always saying, don't be afraid. But the key here is don't be afraid now of what's coming. So often the things we fear, are the anticipation of that fear, right? The fear that happened during COVID was the anticipation of people dying. The fear that happens when we go, uh, we're waiting for the results of a test from the doctor's office, that anticipation, the fear of going to the dentist, right? That the anticipation, it's what's happening beforehand. And Jesus is telling them, you know, don't fear. I've told you what's gonna happen. You already know some of you are going to die. You know some of you are going to prison. So don't let that be a source of fear for you now. I have removed I removed that anticipation. I've let you know the reality of the situation. Don't be anxious about it. Don't fear it. Expect it. But don't fear because I've got your life in my hand. And that's what he does, friends, throughout the whole letter of Revelation. He even does it in... In Peter's letter, he does it in the gospel of Matthew. He does it in Luke. He does it in Mark. We have known throughout the scriptures things that are coming, right? He has let us know what's coming. Peter tells us the earth is not going to be destroyed by, by a flood this time. It's going to be destroyed by fire. We know what's going to come. We know the sun is going to turn dark. We know there's going to be false prophets and false teachers, right? We know these things that are to come. And he says, fear not. They were a suffering church, but he did not want them to fear. Friends, Christianity, it's just as much about how we die or how we approach death as it is about how we live. He would make sure that they would be with him in heaven. He did not want them to live in a constant state of fear. See, the beautiful thing about, I think, this letter to Smyrna is it points to a much larger view of who Jesus is than what maybe they have been thinking of before during their suffering. He wants them to have this larger perspective. I am the resurrection and the life. That's why he says, don't fear. Think beyond this world. Think beyond the present suffering. It's temporary. And that's an encouragement to us. We need to try to think beyond our present circumstances or the present situations going on in the world, wherever you live. Yes, we need to pay attention so we know how to pray and understand how to prepare. I get that. We have to care about the things going on with our health or our family. I get that. But in it, we must be careful, my friends, that we do not let fear paralyze us. He is everything we need and more. And now this letter closes out again with, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This letter is being read out loud. People need to listen closely to its contents. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. The second death, this is something that totally stumps people too. But here is one way of looking at it until Jesus decides by the power of his Spirit to give everybody complete clarity on this. You see, there's something even worse than death. The first death is already something many people dread to think about, right? Or look forward to. But the second death, that's the real thing. Jesus said to his apostles when he set them out, don't be afraid of those who can kill your body and do nothing worse. Rather fear him, Jesus, who can throw body and soul into hell. That's the second death. Don't forget, friends, once we die, we're dead. But then we have a second step in that, where we have to go to the judgment seat of Christ. The one who overcomes can not only look forward to the crown of life, but can be assured that the second death will not touch them. The world did not get the better of you. You overcame the systems of the false system of the antichrist you overcame adversity you overcame your strongholds you overcame and that takes the sting of death away oh death where is your sting what is the sting what is a sting of death that sting of death is when we have to stand there and pay for our sins if we've never repented if we have never been if our sins have never been washed away by the blood of Jesus then there is a sting after death that is where we have to pay that price that's the real sting and Jesus is encouraging them saying you won't even be touched by it it's he that overcomes this is a reminder friends that your journey your pilgrimage of faith is personal You and me, we must become overcomers. And so then the question is today, like it was with Ephesus, did the church respond to this letter? And yes, they did. I want to close out with a story, the story of a man named Polycarp, who was known as the Bishop of Smyrna in the second century. He's probably the most famous Christian martyr that people talk about when it comes to martyrdom. He had known the Apostle John when he was young, so he lived into the second century and became the leader of this church in Smyrna. But then he was betrayed. He was taken into hiding, but was exposed by someone who didn't like his ministry. And so the authorities came after him. Polycarp, by this point in his life, was around 86 years old. Think about that. He had lived all these years sharing the gospel, training others up under the heavy hand of the Roman Empire. And many of us, at least in America, are complaining over little things going on in our cities. And yet this man endured and lived an overcoming life. So they sent soldiers to go and get him. And so when the soldiers arrived and they brought him back, he offered to do something really unique. He offered to make them a meal, and he did. And then he asked him while they were eating if he could have two hours to go and prepare himself, and they agreed, and he went and prepared his soul in prayer. And when he was finished, he was ready. They then took him and brought him before the proconsul, and the proconsul said that he wanted Polycarp to swear that he was loyal to the emperor and proclaimed Caesar as lord. He promised Polycarp liberty if he would do this. But he added that Polycarp would have to reproach Christ. And Polycarp came out with this answer. Eighty and six years I have served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? And then later he said, You threatened me with fire which burns for an hour, and after a little is extinguished, but you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. So they planned to burn him at the stake. Now the Jews of Smyrna, this synagogue of Satan, right? They were among the most bitter enemies of Christians and among the most violent and demanding the death of Polycarp. You're talking into the second century believers now. Eusebius, the historian, says that when Polycarp was apprehended and brought before the proconsul at Smyrna, the Jews were the most furious of all and demanding his condemnation. And guess what? It was a Saturday when they condemned Polycarp, and, when the, and the Jews were the ones to gather the wood for the fire to burn him at the stake, which was breaking the law of Moses. The synagogue of Satan collected the wood for the fire. Then they go and light the fire, but a strong wind came and blew the fire out. So they ordered him to be put to death by the sword. And that was it. See, my friends, Smyrna, Smyrna is such a powerful example for us today. They were a church who overcame much difficulty. And remember when I mentioned that the churches that were closest to Pergamon, that they are the ones that struggled the most? Well, Smyrna was the closest to Pergamon the seat of Satan. Sometimes I wonder, God places us right next to that cauldron. We feel that heat, right? We experience the oppression. We experience the pressing. But it's in that pressing, that Gethsemane that produces that oil, that anointing to be overcomers. And we're there for a reason. We're not there for ourselves. We are there for the souls that need saving. I just wonder sometimes, could Polycarp have moved somewhere else? I don't know. Either way, he lived his 86 years in Smyrna. Easier doesn't always mean better for your faith, my friends. Jesus is with this suffering church from the present time of this letter all the way through. He is with all of you who are suffering out there now. And if he's in the midst of that lampstand, he's in the midst of yours, especially if you are in a region of the world suffering for this cause. So I hope that you take this letter to heart. I hope it blesses you. I hope it helps you to be encouraged to stand strong in the faith and to encourage each other. Don't grow weary in the well-doing, my friends. We will reap if we don't lose heart. Until our next time, God bless you.